he's only able to recognize two emotions, anger and being bored. He doesn't have the words to explain, and that's why it's just all coming out in a very frustrated way. This is Is My Child a Monster? a parenting therapy podcast where you get to listen in as real parents and caregivers share their trials and tribulations in therapy sessions recorded live. I'm your host, Leslie Cohen-Ruberry. I'm a parent and a therapist with 38 years of experience helping families navigate this question. And no, your child is not a monster. Today is my third and final session with Emily and David, parents of a six-year-old son, Jack. David and Emily have been working hard on not working so hard and experimenting with other approaches. Curiosity is something I encourage with all of my clients, regardless of their children's age. It's so important to approach parenting and your child with openness and willingness, which includes asking the question over and over, what am I missing here? And throughout these sessions, David and Emily really start to embrace that philosophy. We also talk about Jack's recent neuropsych testing and how best to use that information in an open-minded, flexible, and curious way. We bounce around in this session quite a bit, which happens in therapy because just like raising kids, it's not a linear process. Okay, now as a reminder, all the names and identifying information have been changed. This show is for informational purposes only and not a substitute for therapeutic intervention. So let's begin. Hi, Emily. Hi, David. How are you? Good. Good. Hi, Leslie. Doing well. Good. Good to see you today. It's been several weeks. Um, So I left you with some work to do in terms of um, don't work so hard. Um, So I do feel like I've been working a little less hard. And I think that if nothing else, that just takes a little bit of pressure off. Nice. You know, just kind of let, letting things go a little bit more. I don't know that we've seen that impact Jack's behavior very much. I, I wouldn't say we've been through, a, I would say, a, a tough few weeks um, since we last mm-hmm. last talked, you know, behavior-wise. Uh, but I do feel like that advice kind of just took some pressure off myself a little bit, which was nice. I also tried the advice that you gave us last time and just um, be less involved. Uh, And no, I've tried, but it's, I find it hard. So I don't think I've I've done as much as I could have or should have. I don't know. I think we've been dealing with crisis, social crisis. So it's just been, but, but it's just knowing that it's at the back of our mind that, you know, we do, we do need to do less. Uh, I think it's been helpful because I was more conscious of it. Okay. I have two comments about that. One is I'd like to understand a little bit more of what in your mind you're working towards. Like, what does that look like to you? What do you think you're trying to accomplish by working less, stepping back a little? So that's one question. And the other comment is that I want to acknowledge that this is very much a long-term 
project. You know, we don't want to burn out as parents. I mean, parents can burn out in the first week of parenting, right? So we want to make sure we're thinking about this as a long-term endurance. I got to keep going with this. I got to be a parent for many, many, many years. I got to keep showing up. So we want to have a little less pressure on ourselves. So also the idea that you don't have to see big changes in one week, right? It's not like I expect you to come back and say, oh, Jack is totally different. And I heard you say, and I'm very curious to hear what, what's been going on. Sound like it's very intense, but it's not an emergency at this moment. So let's take a moment getting into that. Can I hear what you think it looks like to pull back a little bit, to work a little less hard? Emily, what do you think it looks like? For me, it was, I had to work more actually on being more confrontational with him a little bit, you know, and being more, uh, so it was less for me a question of holding back or being less involved. But being less involved means that, you know, when we had kids over, I tried to to let them do their own thing. So sometimes, yeah, they would come up to me and just say, uh, he hit me or he did, and I'm like, you know, you sort it. So I think that was helpful in feeling less guilty that I don't need to intervene all the time. Okay. Yeah. Do you think um, in terms of, you know, not working as hard that this sort of effort you put out to sort of distract him when he's feeling disappointed and upset, do you think you've been doing that less or the same? I've tried to say no more mm-hmm. and just to say, no, you've reached that limit. And therefore, you know, I'm putting those limits and you just, you can't, you can't continue this behavior. But in some cases, it just doesn't work. Uh, and I think the key learning for me is just you need to choose when you do that. There's some circumstances where it just doesn't work and it escalates. And if you have all the time in the world, it's all great. But if you're trying to get somewhere or <laughs> it gets it gets complicated. Yeah. And you're talking about what I call the art of parenting. You know, there are many people who follow the same recipe. So in parenting, if you had the same instructions, do this, do this, do this, do this, it's not going to come out the same because there's the the science of parenting and the art of parenting, which are the fine tuning. Do I do this now? Do I not do this now? And yes, I think it's not prescriptive. We're not going to tell you do this and this will happen. It's here's what we know. There is a science. There's absolutely a science to what's reinforcing, what's not reinforcing enforcing what what skills will help and your job as a parent is to figure out what works what's effective so I like that you're thinking that way which is I'm not going to say no all the time I might use my distraction I have to figure out when to use what skills so um, that's very good I want to reinforce that comment that it's not easy to figure it out and that's what you know you can say is the art of parenting that fine-tuning of okay what do i do in this moment what's going to work what's going to be effective yeah i feel like you need to be in the right space and mindset to do that and so if it's a saturday and you know you there's no obligations then you can take that fight i'm conscious that i need to do more of setting limits but i i need to choose when to do that Okay, and a quick question for you. You called it the fight, conflict. Does it feel like you're going to war with your son? Does it feel really, really painful and really, I mean, I don't want you thinking about it in those terms. Conflict, 
is maybe a disagreement that he wants to do something and you're saying no, but I wonder if there's something in your background that makes you sort of allergic to this kind of conflict. Oh gosh, that's a good question. (laughs) Maybe it was the wrong word that I used, but it is, I haven't been used in my family to be in conflict. Okay. We avoided conflict. We never talked about things. So for me, it's very hard. It's something I worked on with David when we met because I I had a hard time sharing my own feelings or telling him when I wasn't happy with something because this is not something we did with my family. So it's it's work to to open up and to to explain that I'm not happy with uh, with Jack's behavior or so it, it doesn't come naturally. Thank you for sharing that information about your family, that people avoided conflict in your family. For whatever reason, you grew up without the practice of, you know, dealing with conflict. Not every family is like that, and your experience absolutely shapes your behavior as a parent. And I believe that children help us grow. So being conflict avoidant is lovely at times, but actually isn't great if you're going to have your marriage grow and you're going to raise your child. There are times when we need to be in those uncomfortable situations and say that we disagree with someone or speak up about our needs. So I'm so glad I hear you doing that. You learned that early in your relationship. You know, raising Jack will also give you practice at finding ways of dealing with conflict that may feel unfamiliar. Let's change the word from fighting with him about something to this is an unfamiliar feeling. I'm doing something that's not in my repertoire, so it's unfamiliar. Yeah. And and I would say what happened in the last uh, in the last few weeks, it's as if I detached myself from what's happening with Jack. So if he's having a, a moment where he just reacts because we've set a limit and he's not happy. I don't take things personally. I've been able to just ah. put some distance and I say, okay, he's having this moment. Whatever he's saying is meant to be hurtful, but it's he's going through this moment and it's just not against me. Oh. So I, I've really noticed, uh, like, I don't react as much. I haven't been able to do that as well. <laughs> Oh, my goodness. Well, great. Let's learn from each other. Emily, that is a huge step to not personalize our children's behavior because it's a reflection of what's going on emotionally for them is really beautiful. It's respectful to the child. That's beautiful. That's a big step. I don't know if you gave yourself enough credit for that. That's fabulous. It felt it felt better. It just is a set of I didn't need to recover. Like <laughs> it didn't take me, you know. Right. So, yeah. Right. Which means you're more available for your child. If I can use this uh, not so pleasant graphic uh, image is I say if your child was sick and they had a stomach bug and they were throwing up in order to help them, you're probably going to hand them a bucket or get them to the toilet. You don't say, go ahead and throw up on me. I'm here to help you. (laughs) Okay, you don't say that. But in parenting, when you take it personally, you're like letting them throw up on you. Well, that creates two problems instead of my child's sick. Now, I'm a mess, they're sick, and I got to go take care of myself by getting in the shower. That, that paints a very memorable picture, Leslie. Thank you. I won't forget that. It is really important to just say you can be a support to your child by handing them a bucket when they're emotionally upset. 
It's good. No, I, yeah. That will flash <laughs> into my mind, I'm sure. And that'll help you take that extra step to not personalize it. And it still implies that I want you to be there to support that your child, respect their emotion without taking it on. Because then, as you said, Emily, you now you don't have to recover. (laughs) All right. We can move on to what's been going on. Okay. Well, so so one thing we definitely wanted to, to chat with you about is that sort of in parallel with the sessions we've been having, we've also been having Jack evaluated by a neuropsychologist, which felt a little bit like overkill. Like it's not like things are so extreme that we really felt like we needed a diagnosis of something or whatever. But we just thought you know, it, it it was nearby. It was it was easy to do. And we sort of thought, why not? And this person came highly recommended by some other families that we know that have engaged uh, with her. So we decided to do that. And it's, it's taken several sessions and several weeks. But we just on just a few days ago uh, got the results of that. And I think we were a bit surprised that he tested as being in the 99.7 percentile for on some kind of battery of various kinds of intellect. But so he tested quite quite high. I mean, we, we knew he was a bright kid. We you know we we didn't didn't doubt that. But but we sort of expected to hear, you know, you have a bright kid. He's maybe a little bored at school, and and some of that frustration that you're experiencing might be bad. And here's maybe some ways to address that and you know that's kind of what we expected to hear and yeah that he's you know a little behind on emotional intelligence but that will probably come that that was that was sort of my expectation but instead what we heard was you know you have a kid who's extremely bright and needs and is entitled to some accommodations at school to to make sure that he you know is stimulated enough to not be experiencing frustration also, that he needs to work on some emotional intelligence as well, and then she has proposed some some kind of behavioral therapy with a colleague of hers to begin to address that, plus some coaching for us, I think probably similar to the kinds of conversations we've been having with you. But so that's daunting for us. I mean, you know, part of us or me is, is kind of, you know, happy to hear that my kid's really bright. That's you know, not a bad thing to hear, but obviously it comes with some challenges too, and and it's not a case of just be patient, it's going to be okay. It's a case of, no, you need to take some actions to make sure his environment, you know, is, is giving him what he needs. See what you, how you react to that. Because it did click for us that, like, if he's really bored at school, if it's like the teacher has told us he's behaving really well at school, he's holding all this in and then coming home and then kind of unleashing it on us. Absolutely. You know, in terms of the neuropsych testing that you did, it can provide a lot of information, right? Some of the nuances of how the processing speed, what areas of the brain work stronger, others memory, working memory versus long-term memory. So there are pieces of information that they probably explain to you, which can be very helpful, especially when you're, you know, you're talking about accommodations in school. Yes, I think that information is all very very, very helpful. Right now, from what I've heard, there's no surprises. This is a great opportunity for you to do some advocating. It will be different at different times. Um, You now have, you know, the data to go into the school and request that. There may be outside things that can also help him stimulate his thinking and address those strengths that you can do at home or as extracurricular. But 
definitely this gives you information to go to the school and do that. And he's a rule follower. So the big thing is, you know, he goes to school and even if he is bored, he's like you said, holding it together. He might be masking. He actually might find it very comforting Mm -hmm. to be in school and finding it easy. He, He often complains about having to go, but it seems to be motivated more by just feeling bored. Okay. Once he's there, like once we get him into the front gate and he sees his friends, he usually seems really happy. I, I don't I don't think he's miserable at school. I do think he's got a teacher who will be yeah. who will be listening and and um so we just we've just learned this information this week, so I'm still processing on how, you know, we need to adapt and and change also what we do with him or how we interpret certain behaviors. It was helpful to know as well that he was he's only able to recognize two emotions, anger and being bored. Okay. So I think that that really helps us in terms of he doesn't have the words to explain. He doesn't. And that's why it's just all coming out in, in a very frustrating way. Absolutely. Absolutely. So a lot of the work that we're talking about is very, very much confirmed by those findings, is that when you're asking him questions and questions, you're getting a blank slate because it wasn't there. And I I do want to be careful that we don't make him feel broken. Yes. I'm having a hard time with that, yeah. Okay. So, again, we want to provide it as information. We talked about a lot of strategies of naming, you know, other feelings, uh, rating it. So there's much more in terms of backing off, but then providing a, a bigger rainbow of emotions that you can provide to him and just modeling it. Like I said, people watching and seeing the emotions in other people, reading it in stories. Like one of the things that you've talked about is trying to teach him, teach him, teach him. And I want to say, let's expose him, expose him, expose him. So, you know, if child grows up in a home where there's a lot of reading, most likely that child through the modeling is going to read. Not where you're always, always trying to teach him, but a gentle exposure to that out there. There's so many incredible children's books about, you know, emotions and all of that. And not just positive ones, the negative ones too. He's been asking to have a pet. And we were wondering if that could help with emotions or whether it's just, (laughs) <laughs> something else to take care of. <laughs> a hamster. A hamster specifically. <laughs> oh, he wants a hamster. Okay. So when parents say their child wants a hamster, I look at the parents and say, do you want a hamster? <laughs> it is going to be your responsibility. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yes, it's a wonderful thing. I think it's lovely. It really is up to all of you. Uh, personally, I love that children have the opportunity to grow up with animals, but I want to be realistic that there's going to be a lot of, okay, if I get you a hamster, then you're going to be the one to take care of it. And you're the one, right? And that's possible. And certainly you can do that with your child, but the expectation that they are going to take care of their pet because it's their pet and they want it. Yeah. You're shaking your head. It doesn't, Uh, that doesn't work that way. All they want is the idea. No, I think we, we had sort of ruled out the, the, the idea of having a hamster or even a dog because we know we're going to have to take care of it. Yeah. And I think it would be a source of tension because he will not take care of it. And I think David is going to be after him all the time. Yeah. So I don't. So the only reason we would get one is if it could help with 
developing his emotions somehow. But I think it's more empathy, and empathy yeah. he does have. So yeah, that, that's sure the thing. Like, I, I definitely don't want another thing in life to take care of. There are enough things to take care of, people and things. And so I, I don't want an animal for that reason. But if we thought it could be you know, therapeutic for him, that it could help him you know, with empathy or emotions, then, then we'd, we'd do it for sure. So I will say, I, yeah, I'm going to contradict myself and say, one, you get to make the decision, and two, yes, for a highly sensitive child that might be having trouble verbalizing, just having that soft emotional thing that just represents, I don't have to talk to this. It's going to give me unconditional love. It's less about developing empathy because I think he's already got that. I don't question his empathy. I love an animal for the sake that it gives a child unconditional love. It's like coming home and your dog wags its tail no matter how (laughs) long you left it, no matter how much it has to pee, it still says, I'm happy to see you. And a little hamster is soft and he will pet it and it does serve the function of connection it serves the function of this is my safe space like when i get to pet my little hamster i feel safe he's my little friend it teaches a lot it teaches about frustration it teaches uh about death ultimately because they don't live that long you know and and david you saying well i don't think i can handle one more thing i'm like yeah go ahead try it it's good work for you now, i don't make life easy for parents and at the same time my whole job is to make life easier for parents so i don't know that i'm helping here with this decision I- I think from his point of view, he would love to have a hamster. And that's understandable. And I don't think you can convince yourself that he doesn't need it. I'm going to tell you, no matter what, he would love it. He would he would benefit from it. It just has to be sort of a little bit of a adult decision as well. Yes. When, when I said to him, if you yeah. get a hamster, just so you know, there won't be any screen time after school until your homework is done, which is something we've yeah. been doing more of. And um, and the hamster is taken care of, whatever it needs. If its cage needs to be emptied or it needs to be fed or whatever, like that, that's those things will have to happen first. And then he said, maybe I'll get a hamster when I'm older. So <laughs> it's a little bit hard to know. Like, I think he's kind of aware that he really likes the idea more than the reality. Right. But, but still, if it's therapeutic, I think... And it's up to you guys. Do you sit down with him and the hamster and play with the hamster? Is it that it's only looked at as a chore? Or is it looked at as a little family member who's now, you know, we're going to spend time with this little creature so that he gets more contact with it rather than just the idea of it. So it also is showing him how to take care of, you know, another creature. Um, While we were talking there um, about, you know, modeling emotion and him showing emotion. I didn't think of a story that happened just today that I think maybe does show some some progress because it was unusual. Um, we were watching a video online. I forgot what we were even looking at, but it was something about Mr. Rogers and the puppets on Mr. Rogers. Um, there was a, a video clip of, of one of the puppets, Henrietta, who uh, was, was having, was really upset, really angry. And then something fell and then she became very sad and it was kind of hard to follow and just a you know, contextless YouTube clip but we watched that and then he said she was angry but then why did she become sad and he kept asking me like he really wanted to like analyze it and understand he was identifying that this puppet was angry and then became sad which is true it's what what was happening so I, I thought that was unusual for him he doesn't usually 
That's yeah. I thought that was a hopeful um yes so that is interesting because it's maybe demonstrating that he might only think you can have one emotion at a time which is actually very common for a whole number of people who think that if i'm angry at my spouse i can i forget that i also love them that is the idea of being able to hold dialectically two opposing feelings at the same time or two opposing thoughts he might be indicating I didn't know you can have two emotions at the same time because that's sort of what happened. She went from angry to sad. And so I show him two hands and I say, yeah, you can have, you can have more than two emotions at the same time. And then you start to maybe play with where might you, you know, what happens if mommy says you can't go over to your friend's house? Well, you might get mad. You might get angry first, <laughs> and then you might get sad because you're going to miss seeing your friend. So you can see if you can find some scenarios like that. Again, bibliotherapy, which is using books to help teach children, it's so beautiful. Authors have done such a beautiful job of children's books where they teach it. The story teaches it. You don't have to even add any extra words the story teaches it and children can learn a lot from just reading a variety of different books so what i love that you guys do is you're very observant your son is providing you with little opportunities for more development or curiosity and I want you to sort of write them down use them use them now in the moment or use them later so for example when you're upset you might say I'm upset I'm angry and I still have a lot of love I have my love inside I have my love and my anger both of those things are here right now with me in this room because he might think if you're angry with me then you stop loving me this might be mind-boggling to him that it's like, wow, I didn't know that. He can do math on a probably a ninth grade, tenth grade level, but he may not be able to give you an emotional awareness at that same level. And that's okay. And certainly starting young, you can offer some opportunities. Slowly. That's helpful. Yeah, yeah. you got plenty of time. I don't want it to feel rushed for you or for him. You know, because when you get some kind of diagnosis, you're like, oh, my gosh, how am I going to handle this? We need to talk to the teacher. We need to work on his emotions. We need to. And, and I was just a bit afraid that, as you said, he was be it, there would be some kind of stigma or that he would be the bright kid who who gets angry or the. You know, so I just don't want I, my first reaction is I told uh, I told David, I don't want people to know. But now I feel like, hmm. We actually need to adapt how we are and what we do. So, yeah, I'm so more open to it. what I really like to say about a diagnosis is sounds like the medical model because a diagnosis is used in the medical model and it sounds like a problem. What you did with the neuropsych testing is you got a lot of information right? There are times when a diagnosis is extremely valuable, really valuable. In this case, I'm hearing information as to who your son is, and it's limited. She wasn't able to cover everything. So you have information about your son. And what I love is remember to present him as a whole well-rounded person. 
right? And when you talk to him and when he says, I'm smart, say, yes, you're smart. And sort of like make a pie graph and say, and you're curious. It's like we, we want to see ourselves as well-rounded people where not everything is our strength. No, and it's, as I said, we're digesting. <laughs> but for me, it's, it's, it's important information, just like he needs to move. Uh, she said it's just it's just who he is he just can't sit or if he sits he just has a hard time and I think I've uh, instead of telling him come to the table stay at the table for dinner I've kind of let him go around the table and then sit down again and I, I feel less frustrated so I think it's it's also helping with how we react Exactly. So now you're showing him some respect that this is who you are. The more we respect our children, the more they feel like they're being seen and understood. So, you know, when you go to a restaurant, he's going to know the difference between I get to run around at home. I probably am not going to run around the restaurant because, again, he might be a rule follower and he might say, so it's nice to see that he knows how. And if he doesn't know how, that's a different issue. But if he knows how to discriminate and discern the difference between I can get up and walk around at home, I can't necessarily do that at the restaurant or they don't let me do that in the school cafeteria. So that's a very intelligent thing to know the difference between what I can do here, what I can do somewhere else. That's a beautiful thing. And he does, and he does make that in that, in that particular example. I mean, he absolutely does that. He's different in a restaurant than, than at home. Not that he's not that he's running around crazy all the time at home either, but he, he does seem to like just sometimes just need to get up and uh, he got a he got a new scooter for his uh, birthday recently, and and it's in the house because we had snow and now we have rain, and so he can't really go out with it. And so that he's he's <laughs> ridden his scooter around the dinner yes. table, and um, that's a his bit. excitement. That's his excitement, and you get to say, "I see your excitement." And yes, when you don't make a big deal out of it, it actually doesn't become a big deal. We're fighting against part of who the child is. And so the fact that you have this information which can help him understand himself is, oh, you you need to move. You have energy. And when we sit at the table, sometimes getting up makes a lot of sense. Okay, we get it. We could be a little more explicit about that. Like, oh, we see that you're feeling like you need to move. You've probably been sitting still at school most of the day and you just need to move around a little yeah. bit. That's okay. Yeah, it's, it's a compromise between the rules that you need in society. To, mm-hmm. It can't just be all about you, yourself, and, you know, like it, you have to also be part of a, adapt to some rules that exist. So it's, it, it's a compromise between what you need and, and what society Yeah, but as long as, he's, as long as he's adhering to those rules at yeah. school yeah. or in a yeah. restaurant or, or in someone else's house. Excellent. And I know schools will give kids movement breaks. There are some kids that need a movement break. You know, I don't know if in the morning you guys want to do some fun, maybe an early walk or, you know, scootering around the house before he goes off to school, recognizing some of that energy. So we'll see how things evolve in the coming years, because I think right now it's fine. He's still grade two yes still learning through play and you get to move around but i think the more he goes up uh, the harder it will get with the system yeah so this will be information that you grow with and like we said he's 
he is who he is and that will, you know, stay consistent. So you keep an eye on the different, you know, different environments that he's in because it's all about the fit. And there are times when you'll notice in his behavior, his behavior is the form of communication. I want you to remember that, that when he starts acting up, there's something that the adults in his world, either he's not able to communicate or the adults are not understanding. You've got 18 years to learn about your child and reflect that information back to him, right? And I think observing him and understanding what yes what he needs uh, to thrive. And now that we know about him, that he needs a lot of stimulation, so much activity, you know, like go biking. After we go biking, he wants to do something else. And I'm, we're, <laughs> we're exhausted and we're like, oh, maybe we're overdoing with him, but in fact, no, he he, yeah. he needs it. Yeah, he really, really loves it. You said before the idea of dealing with the environment, like he has to know how to sit in a restaurant or sit in school and, you know, also then respecting his need and maybe doing it at home. Um, yes, we don't necessarily want to live in any extremes where it's an extreme on either end. We want to find a balance of walking a middle path, as it's called in DBT, but that middle path doesn't have to be 50-50. At home, you're going to see a more challenging side of him. That's true for all of us. So don't think, yeah, be careful not to judge yourself. He's like behind the curtain. He's saying, okay, you get to see me in my most vulnerable state. Yeah, that's good to remember. I wish we could, you, you, you talk about like the, you know, his behavior coming and going is a sign of, you know. Communication. Something yeah. else that's going on. And, and we've we've tried to really think about like what's the pattern like when we because we def, it definitely comes in waves right and it does feel like each each peak and trough is kind of you know shorter and less intense than the ones we went through earlier on where it felt like a year and a half of just really difficult time and now it's you know a few days or a week and then things seem to get better for a few days right or a week, you know but but but, so we, but we've looked for like oh, what's what are what's going on behind is it is it does it line up with when he's in school or out of school on holiday not on holiday is it line up with when one of us is traveling for work or and, and we just can't we just can't see the pattern. So the idea is you're looking for prompting events. You're looking for what sets off the big emotion. So write down and actually stay curious. It's very very hard to do and. Therapy can help you figure it out, you know, the coaching that uh, this person might recommend, because that's what I was doing when we talked about the piano. We were looking at, is this something that he worries about how people think of him? Is it that he thinks his teacher's going to be upset with him? And then we got to, is it when he thinks he's going to disappoint you? And, you know, you start to get to understand. And when you see some patterns, even though you don't think there's a pattern there, I would say being highly sensitive. He doesn't like being vulnerable. I think these are all different prompting events for him, not wanting to be vulnerable, um, like with his friend, making a mistake, not wanting to make a mistake, feeling some shame. These are all possible prompting events that lead to the bigger emotion or the outburst of emotion, or if he thinks he can't do something well enough. So go ahead and make some hypotheses and then 
watch to see if the next time and the next time and the next time, if if those hypotheses sort of come true. So there's probably going to be about four or five things like I just named. I think not having the language, it's what you really came to me about is you're trying to get, you know, him to say what's going on. You And he just doesn't have the words. And I wouldn't force it. That's where I took the pressure off of him and you. But... I do think that's a challenge to be able to express uh, what he's trying to express. That is very challenging for a child who can intellectually do a whole lot of other things on a verbal linguistic level. But when he doesn't have the words to do it on an emotional level, that's just very frustrating. I think talking about emotion is one thing, but um, I've noticed with him what works is storytelling, working with puppets. And when he was going through a hard time, I think he was he had a he was having a fight with a with a friend at school, and he couldn't explain what was going on. And so I I read stories, and he said, "That's not how my what my friend did." And then he started talking a bit more about it. So he related to the story. So this is how I try to get him to speak about what's happening, but but he can't really verbalize. Beautiful. Absolutely beautiful. Um, Hopefully you have a lovely library system where you can go and ask your librarian to help you find some more books. The stories are great, whether you make them up or whether you read them. I have a list. I've been, you know, my favorites, you know, so I'll send you my list of books that I love to read with children. And you're on this lovely path of trying to understand your son. I know it's a little frustrating that you don't have all of the prompting events figured out. And he's six years old. So stay curious. I love that, that you can stay curious. Actually, I will add one more metaphor. Um, I've used it before. And that is children are like puppies with big feet. And puppies are very clumsy. They look clumsy when they're flopping around, especially a big dog, because they have such big paws. Um, But those dogs grow into their big feet. And what I like to tell children is when they have big emotions and they feel like there's something wrong with me, I've got these big emotions, I can't control it. They don't really say that, but that's how you know they must feel. I like Mm -hmm. to say, you're Mm -hmm. just like the puppy with big paws. Don't worry, you're gonna grow into those big emotions. And it's a a statement of hope. It's It's an image of hopefulness that, oh yeah, that dog's gonna grow into its paws and you're gonna grow into your big emotions, being able to handle them. I really like to give children that uh, positive kind of image that, yes, this is hard to have big emotions that you don't know what to do with. Okay, so there's that image too. And so I hope that you're also taking away this idea that you're curious about who he is, respecting him, uh, helping him understand himself, and then also being willing, which has been a beautiful thing to watch the two of you, be willing to look at yourselves as well. So... Jack's really lucky to have you guys as parents and keep giving yourself that permission to learn, to grow, and to be imperfect because that's the kind of parent he needs. (laughs) Thank you so much, Leslie. Thanks. Thank you. A lot of parents think their child is the problem or they need to change something about their child. 
Sometimes what you need to change is your perspective, and you just need to learn how to understand your child. Emily and David got more information to help them understand Jack through these sessions and through neuropsych testing. And all this information has helped them decide how to move forward. This was our last session, but Emily gave us an update. Jack has started psychotherapy to help learn about his emotions. David and Emily are working with his school to modify his curriculum to better suit his needs. And Emily is still working on doing less and letting Jack figure out things on his own. Emily shared an instance where Jack complained about going to the doctor. And the change she made was to let him feel the feelings without distracting him. And to her amazement, by the time they got to the doctor, he had forgotten he was mad. And as Emily said, sometimes working less works. I want to thank Emily and David for their willingness to rethink their parenting strategies. Emily felt a big difference when she stepped back from her son's big reactions. She felt like she no longer personalized his behaviors. That's a huge achievement. And David said he felt less pressure on himself as a parent. And that's also a huge achievement. Just to come back to the testing for a moment, David and Emily both felt like it was a lot to digest for themselves and to explain to Jack. Thankfully, there are some resources to help you do that. One of my favorite websites is explainingbrains.com. It was created by educational psychologist, Dr. Liz Angoff, who just so happens to be next week's guest, our first special guest of the season. Dr. Angoff works with families to help understand and empower neurodivergent kids. And I'm really excited to chat with her about her work. So subscribe to Is My Child a Monster wherever you get your podcasts so you don't miss an episode. And if you like what you hear, please rate and review on Apple Podcasts. You can find a full transcript to this episode and sign up for my newsletter at ismychildamonster.com. The Is My Child a Monster team is Alita Cooper, AJ Moultre, Camila Salazar, and me. Special thanks to Eric Ruberry and Mia Warren. Our theme music is by L. Ray Music. I'm Leslie Cohen Ruberry. Thanks so much for listening. And this week, let's honor the individual learning styles of children and adults alike.